Welcome to Newer Church with Corey Turner. We pray you encounter God and become more like Jesus through this message. To find out more, visit us at numa.church. Why don't you sit down and go with me to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. Matthew 5, verses 1 to 3. The Lord's been speaking to me about us as a church for the rest of this year, leaning into speaking and teaching and preaching about being pursuers of the presence of God. And in one sense, if you're a spirit-filled believer, a follower of Jesus, you have the presence of God. But there is also this invitation, this pursuit that we're called into, that we're invited into, where we get to know him in a more intimate and deeper way. And I know in my own life, the Lord is stirring my heart, stirring my appetite around God. There are lots of things that we can pursue in the kingdom of God, but there is nothing greater than the treasure of actually knowing God himself. And in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is a beautiful picture of a life of discipleship, and what it looks like in the kingdom of God. If you want to know what the kingdom life looks like, what kingdom culture looks like, and we have eight values in our church related to kingdom culture, look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's a picture of the kingdom of God in action. Matthew's gospel is pregnant and filled with so much richness of truths and, and treasures of the kingdom of heaven that you and I can discover And Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount, says in verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is where I want us to focus in tonight. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I wanna speak to you tonight on this idea, possessing nothing yet having everything. What does it look like to possess nothing and be possessed by nothing and yet have everything that the kingdom of heaven has made available to you and I? I can remember several years ago when I was uh, full-time itinerant, traveling around, Uh, the body of Christ in the world, about 47 weeks a year for six years, I was on the road. And I remember at one of these churches that I was at here in regional Victoria, uh, I was preaching a message and I was talking about the life of faith and talking about how God's not moved by need, but He's moved by faith. Many of you heard me talk and and teach about that. And uh, while He loves us and He cares about our needs, He's primarily moved by our faith. And uh, I began to call people forward in the altar call to come and respond in faith bring needs to the Lord and begin to cry out to God and really begin to take steps of faith out of this message uh, towards their breakthrough and their victory. And as I'm standing there leading people in the altar call, the Lord says, answer your own altar call. How does know no one's allowed to preach the messages back to the preacher? You know, it's like my kids preach my sermons back to me. I'm like, hang on a second, you can't preach my messages back to me. But if they can't preach it back to me, if it doesn't work at home, it's not gonna work in the pulpit. 
right? And the Lord said, answer your own altar call. And so I hopped down off the platform rather awkwardly and answered my own altar call. And God began to speak to me about a need that I had in my life, significant financial need, and we're believing for a house, etc. And and as I'm praying and, and everyone's crying out to God, the Lord says, I want you to sell your bike and give the money to this particular person. He told me who to give it to. And I immediately in my head said, I rebuke that in Jesus' name. That's of the flesh. That's not of the Spirit of God because the Lord knows I paid a lot of, a lot of money for my beloved uh, bike, my race bike. And, and I love riding it most days and I don't want to sell it and I definitely don't want to give the money to that person, all right? I was like, they don't even need that money, right? How does know God doesn't care about your opinion? He just wants your obedience, okay? And I'll be honest, I, I, I wish I could tell you today, I went home and, and I got the bike and took it down to the traders, bike traders store and, and the very next day. No, it was six weeks of wrestling, with the Word of God and with the will of God. The issue wasn't the amount of money even to sell the bike and give it away. The issue was, I didn't want to let go of my bike. It's my bike. And if I can't have my bike, I'm going to take my bike and my bat and ball and go home. And it's crazy how the simplest things in our life can occupy some of the greatest places in our heart. And the simplest things in our life the more tight-fisted we hold on to them can become the biggest obstacles to our greatest breakthroughs. The Lord wasn't asking me to simply lay down a thing because He was trying to punish me. He was asking me to lay down a thing firstly because it had taken some of the affection of my intimacy with Jesus and instead of focusing on him, I was enjoying my exercise. Nothing wrong with exercise, but even something that's good for you can take the place of what is great for you when it comes to your relationship with God. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Bodily training is of some good, but how many of us know godliness is of good in every way, both for the present age and the age to come? And so there was a battle of the wills in my life between a thing, silly thing, a simple thing, and God. Do you know, in the book of Genesis, it records that before God created Adam and Eve, He created things. He created animals. He created food. He created all sorts of things. And these things were meant to be servants to Adam and Eve. These things, in fact, the first five days, God created things. He spoke a word, let there be light, and there was light. He spoke all manner of things, and it was created, and he saw that it was good. It was on the sixth day that he created us in his image, humanity after his image and his likeness. So before God created mankind, you and I, he created things. And these things were supposed to be external to us because our internal temple, the inter internal uh, uh, spirit, our hearts was to be reserved for the presence and the holiness of God and God alone. But what happened was is that through the fall of Adam and Eve and the fall of humanity introduced a disorder, a distortion of our worship and our priority. 
And now instead of God only dwelling in the internal shrine of our hearts, it was replaced by an affection and a desire for things. The fall has introduced complications in the human heart to the point that we as human beings now are at conflict in our own souls. We're at conflict between the want for things and a want for God. You see, the fallen heart wants things instead of wanting God. And one of the marks of the fall and one of the marks of a fallen heart is covetousness. The fallen heart replaced a worship of the Creator for a worship of the creation. And when you and I begin to worship things and what's created, rather than worshiping God, the Creator, all manner of bizarre distortion enters into the human condition and the human race. All matters and issues with gender and sexuality is a byproduct, Paul says, by revelation, by exchanging a worship for God the Creator, for a worship for the creation, the created things. The greatest slap in the face of God is to tell God, we know better than you how to operate and function in our sexuality. We know better than the created order. We know better than how you've designed the principles of this planet. And so we've exchanged our worship of the Creator for creation. And it's brought all manner of fallenness and disdain and perversion into the human condition. I mean, you don't even need to look very far to work out that this is in the very DNA of our fallen nature. Ever watch kids playing with toys in a group amongst kids? Have you discovered that within about five to seven minutes, World War III is gonna break out in the kindergarten? Or is that just my kids, all right? When they were little, all right? And I've got amazing kids. Why? Because they're getting sanctified in Jesus' name, right? But, but every kid, any parent in this room knows you just look at your kids when they're little and all of a sudden words like mine will start to come out. And that's, that's mine or Hey, I want what I want. All of a sudden, they start to say things like my and mine. And then the parents have to come in and apologize. I'm so sorry. My kid's a devil. I'm so sorry. It's got demons. I'm so sorry, right? And and, and it doesn't take long. Why? Because me, myself, and I is is not only the trinity of Satan, but me, myself, and I is the mark of the fallen heart. Me, myself, and I is possessive. These are words that are symptoms of a disease. The Bible calls it the disease of the self-life. And the disease of the self-life is possessiveness, where we make things or creation a necessity rather than honouring and worshipping God as creator. So instead of loving God, and using things, we love things, and we use God to get more things. Is it okay if we preach a little bit tonight? Now, God is not against things. He created it. He created things, first five days. 
creation, the Garden of Eden, all sorts of manner of things. He's not against things. He's against things having your heart. He's against things. And things can look like anything. Things could be ministry. I'm not just talking now about making lots of money, wanting to be famous and, you know, living a a sexually illicit, hedonistic lifestyle and do what you want to do, be what you want. I'm not just talking, I'm talking about even good things can be exchanged for God and who he is and all of his glory. And so in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the first beatitude, he addresses the posture of our heart as it relates to created order, as it relates to things. He says, blessed are the pure in heart. Sure, sure, sorry, that's another beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I've preached this, the beatitudes before, and I preach blessed are the poor in spirit, and I've talked about the posture of humility. How many of us know being poor in spirit is not, he's not talking about being impoverished in the natural. He's talking about a posture of humility that recognizes our own spiritual bankruptcy. That apart from God and the finished work on the cross and apart from the Holy Spirit, we left to our own devices are on a one-way road to destruction and it's only those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy that can access the fullness of the kingdom of heaven. But being poor in spirit isn't just about a posture of humility. It is an inward state of freedom from things. When you're poor in spirit, you don't just recognize your need for God. You no longer are a slave to created things. And apparently, according to Jesus, there is a blessing on those who are possessed by nothing and yet have access to everything of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus referred to the tyranny of things in Luke 9, 23, 25. If you're taking notes, write it down or just make a mental note of it. He said, if anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves and let them take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever, listen to it, would save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will save it. For what will it profit you if you gain the whole world and yet lose your own soul? Sadly, I think possessiveness and covetousness is much of the fuel, is much of the drive for gain in many people's lives. King Solomon talked about this, that people succeed in life and attain all manner of achievements and successes in life because they are envious of what somebody else has. There's a covetousness. There's a possessiveness. They want the thing that somebody else has and so they'll sacrifice. They'll they'll deny themselves all sorts of things. They'll try and save their life in this time for the sake of things. If we allow possessiveness to live in our lives, we end up losing everything. But if you kill it, God says you gain everything. And the only way to destroy a possessive, covetous fallenness in our life is through the cross of Jesus Christ. 
It's to live a life of daily picking up that cross and denying yourself, dying to things so that you can come alive to the presence of God. True life, Jesus says, is gained by crucifying the self-life. This is not popular preaching. People, people don't preach a lot like this because there's not a lot of votes. But if we tell you that come to Jesus, all your problems will be solved. You'll be blessed. Your bank accounts will be full. Everything is going to work out. It's going to be amazing. Then everyone's like, yep, I'll vote for that. Now, there is incredible blessing and privilege. If you're a son and daughter of God, just read Ephesians 1. You'll read all the blessings you have in being seated in heavenly places. There is solutions for problems that we face. Aren't you glad about that? There is help in time of need. There is grace when you've run out of strength and energy. There's grace that will sustain you. There's divine unmerited favour. There's faith that you can grow in and can access the fullness of God's kingdom and what He has for you. But there is also, if we are going to truly live, we've got to understand that some things have got to truly die. Some things have got to be crucified. Jesus said in John 12, 24, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it will not produce a harvest. Unless some things die, unless some things are ripped out and rooted out of our heart, we will not be able to access the fullness of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, pray like this, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is the kingdom? It, it, it is the governing influence of Jesus on the earth. It's the rule and reign of the Lordship of Christ in our lives. We will not be able to come under and live in the governing influence of God in every area of our life if we don't get free from a slavery to things. Is this helping anyone tonight? And as I was often in the New Testament, there are illustrations that Jesus uses, that uh, Paul the Apostle uses, that other apostolic writers use, and they draw from the Old Testament. One of the best ways to understand spiritual principles is to actually go back and look at the Old Testament examples of the heroes of faith and see that the heroes of the faith are living examples of New Testament kingdom principles and realities. And so one of the greatest Old Testament illustrations for this New Testament spiritual principle is the life of Abraham. Because Abraham was called to in fact sacrifice his own son, Isaac. It's an amazing story. In fact, if you're wanting to see sort of like a, a modern remake of this story, go to uh, uh, an app, Angel Studios, where the TV series The Chosen is on and there's a movie there, some of you would have seen it, called His Only Son. And it portrays and takes you through the narrative and the journey of Abraham's wrestle with God calling him to sacrifice the promised son, Isaac. You see, God had promised Abraham and Sarah a son that was gonna be born to them supernaturally and born to them as a son of promise. And so when Isaac was born, you need to understand 
that Isaac represented everything to Abraham and Sarah. Not only was he born to them in their old age and testifying and witnessing to the supernatural goodness of God, but Isaac represented the covenant that God had with Abraham, represented God's promise. It represented dreams and visions and all that God had said that he would do through Abraham as the father of many nations. But in Genesis 22, the most horrific and the most sort of uh, disgusting request to ever come from heaven comes to Abraham and he says to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take your son, the Bible says your one and only son, Isaac, whom you love. God knows and understands what's in Abraham's heart more than even what Abraham understands. I want you to take your son Isaac and I want you to go to the land of Moriah and I want you to sacrifice him there. It's interesting, fast forward hundreds of years, King Solomon built the temple, the glory of the temple of the Lord on Mount Moriah. Abraham didn't know that what was about to take place in his heart and in his family would become the foundation of the glory of the Lord to break out on the temple mount as the fire of God would fill the temple. It was in the same land and in the same region. And I just want you to imagine with me for a moment, if such a request came to you, if you were a parent or maybe you are, you can't even begin to imagine such a request. I mean, if the Lord came to me and asked me to go and sacrifice my children, Chelsea, Zach or Josh and any parent in this room, would identify with this. And even if you're not a parent, you can understand. Can you imagine the wrestle in his heart? Can you imagine the the, the sense of, of just absolute, it's almost like going insane. What do you mean? This is the promised son. And not only is this the promised son, but, but he's my son. You've given him to me. What do you mean that I've got to sacrifice him and to give him up? Our brains can't even compute the wrestle or the travail. The words fail to articulate what would be going on in Abraham's heart. And yet, Abraham made up his mind to obey God. The Bible says in verse 3 that the next day he rose up early in the morning. I can imagine that all night he's deliberating, he's wrestling. But in the morning he gets up, he saddles the donkey, he gets Isaac, he gets his servant and he goes to the land of Moriah. And when they get to Mount Moriah, he takes his son. His son's like, where's the sacrifice, dad? And Abraham's like, God is going to provide. And he builds an altar and he gets his son and he bounds his son. Can you imagine the torment in his mind and in his heart? He doesn't understand, but he's got a word and he doesn't make sense. And how could a loving, holy God do such a thing? And yet Abraham didn't know what was even in his own heart, but God knew. And God sees what Abraham's doing. And as Abraham lifts up his son Isaac upon that altar and ties him down and he gets a knife and he gets to the point of no return, God tells him to stay his hand, to withhold his hand. And the word of the Lord comes to Abraham. Now I know that there is nothing that you will withhold from me. 
Now I know that you will not even withhold your only son. You see, God saw a perversion in Abraham's heart, even for his own children. That Abraham didn't see. That even his own son could become a stumbling block to his worship and his honour. Isaac, in one sense, was the very thing that occupied Abraham's heart and God was testing. God was never going to destroy Isaac. That was a practice of the false religions and the false worship of the occult and the witchcraft of the nations around them. But God wanted to see, would you withhold a thing from me or would you sacrifice a thing? Because I am your greatest and treasured possession. I say it's, it's heavy. And the Bible says in verse 16 that heaven opened after that and God spoke a word and he reaffirmed his covenant with Abraham. What was the secret that Abraham learned? He learned that to gain everything, you must possess nothing but God alone. If you are gonna gain the kingdom, if you're gonna gain everything that God has made available to you, nothing can occupy any place in your heart except God alone. This is interesting because in the natural, Abraham had everything. He was one of the richest men of the East. In fact, the world will look at Abraham and say, you've made it. You got all the followers on Instagram, your bank accounts are full. You're on the private jet. You, you, you've got all the platforms. You've got all the doors opening to you. You've got Nike deals. You're on preachers and sneakers. You're on prophets and watchers. you got everything. you got everything going on for you. It's all happening. Oh, they've got everything. But yet God looked at Abraham and saw that he had everything, not because of his riches, but because Abraham settled once and for all who was truly God. He possessed nothing, but he had everything. He was possessed by nothing, but he had access to everything that heaven wanted to give. Can you imagine the words my and mine never being the same again in Abraham's mouth? If he's willing to take my own son, there's nothing that I have, God, I'm a steward. All that I have is you. How do we get free from our possessiveness to things? The answer is you stop defending it and you get honest with God. You stop making excuses. You stop allowing compartments of your heart to occupy certain places in your life and you expose your heart, you lay it all on the altar, you get real with God, you get honest with God, and you ask God to cut out, to root out of your heart things that have taken place of your, of your worship of the one true God. Why is this important? Because Jeremiah 79 and 10 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And the prophet responds, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. You and I can't follow our hearts because we, our heart is deceitful. It's desperately wicked. The worst advice in the world is follow your heart. If someone tells you to do that, in the spirit, politely slap them upside the head. Turn your cheek, but in the spirit, why? 
because that is the worst advice. Oh, just follow your heart. Your heart will be true to you. No, it won't. The devil is a liar. The devil will say, just follow your heart. In fact, one of the, the number one rules of the satanic Bible and satanic worshippers is follow your heart. Do whatever your heart wants to do. Just be true to yourself. Do whatever your heart. What is the mantra of a fallen generation? Oh, be true to your heart. No, no, Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, die to your deceit. Die to your wickedness. And come alive in me. Pick up your cross. Crucify the self-life. Crucify your possessiveness of things. Our hearts fear to give up its toys. We don't want to give up our toys. And I'm not talking about just material possessions. It could be that. It could be as silly and as simple as a push bite. But the Lord is not just talking about those things. He's talking about your dreams, your ambitions, your idea that says, if I don't find a partner, my life isn't worth living. That's a thing. Oh, I'm preaching, I, I, I tell you, it's coming thick. We all have things. I have things. And I can't preach a message like this unless I spend the week repenting of things. Because if it doesn't work as for me and my house, how's it gonna work for God's house? God, would you cut out of my heart? Would you cut out of our heart? A possessiveness. Where even our hearts deceive us and say, oh no, you've got to have that thing. If I don't have that thing, I've, I've got nothing. And God says, well, what, what if I ask you to put that Isaac on the altar? Because how many of us know God has a way of pinpointing and highlighting that very thing? My encouragement to you is to engage in real and raw conversation with God. Get specific. Name the things that have stolen your affection. Come defenseless. Don't come with a little, even a little shield of one room in your heart. Don't say, well, you can't touch that door. No, I've thrown away the key. You can't touch that. No, come defenseless. Because if you come defenseless and open every room of your heart, God will be your defender. And everything you lay down, this is why J. Mayer's word was so significant for him and even I, I believe tonight for many of us. That what you're willing to lay down, whatever thing you're willing to lay down, you'll be amazed at what God will give you back. And some of us are holding so tightly, tight-fisted onto things. And God's like, I've got this massive call and purpose and opportunity and blessing and, and all of this for you. I've got all that I am. It's not trade a small thing for a bigger thing. It's lay down your thing and pick up him. And then whatever his thing is, it works. It's blessed, it's favoured. But you need to know something. The curse of possessiveness, the curse of fallenness will not leave without a fight. Have you discovered that? Your flesh is gonna make every excuse under the sun to hold on to that thing. 
Anyone ever started like a new diet, new nutrition, and you're like, I'm not going to eat any sugar, or I'm not going to eat any carbs, I'll just have a cheat meal once a week, and seven days a week turn into cheat meal? Because you're like, oh, it's okay, I've been really good for the last 12 hours, am I right or am I right? I've been really good for this day, I've been doing the whole intermittent fasting thing for two hours, and, and it's been awesome, it's been amazing, but you know, you just got to treat yourself every now and then, and it becomes treating yourself every day, anyone ever been there? And then before you know it, you know, you sort of, it's Groundhog Day and you're back at day six, day seven. You're like, this week, this is the week, man. I am going to exercise. I'm going to get to bed early. I'm not going to watch TV late. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat. I'm just going to eat rabbit food. I'm going to eat salad. I'm going to drink water. I'm just going to gallon it in. I'm just going to drink and drink. And, and, it, and, and we deceive ourselves because the flesh wants what the flesh wants. Why? Because your fallen nature is going to fight for its priority and affection. And then self-pity starts to get in. I've been fasting donuts for a week. I need carbs. Carbs come here in Jesus' name. And, and it's like, your wife's like, what's wrong with you? I need carbs. And it's... And then self-pity and, 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 and you've got to resolve to stand against self-pity. Why? Because self-pity was the very thing that aided Lucifer's fall. Oh, that they, they won't give me worship like I want it. They won't honour me like God. I want to be like God. I will ascend. And self-pity comes in. Self-pity is the most reprehensible of all the sins. Why? Because it partners with pride and blocks the fullness of the kingdom of heaven to you. Self-pity. You see, I've discovered in this journey of revival that a revival of heart comes by renunciation of things. I prayed a simple prayer over 12 months ago, nearly 12 months ago now, in the side tunnel of this church. God, will you father me? It sounded so holy at the time. It was, it was purely motivated. And then I walked 10 meters and the Lord stopped me and said, are you serious about that? Yeah, I am, Lord. I come to you childlike, open-handed. Will you father me at a deeper level? Oh, it was glorious. Five minutes later, glory breaks out. All of heaven's open. Angels are dancing. You know, fireworks, lights, bells, whistles and sirens. People are healed. The glory of God breaks out. Repentance, it's amazing. The wave of revival comes. And then God pinpoints something in my heart and says, now let that go. Well, hang on a sec. That, that one hurts. I just want the glory cloud. I just want revival. I just want to feel good in the presence of God. I want this and I want that. And the Lord says, but I thought you asked me to father you. When he came to me in a role of leadership in our national movement and he said, let it go. I was standing just down here the very night a word came and I heard the Spirit of God says, I want you to lay it down and let it go. And I was overcome with emotion because there was part of my heart that wanted that thing. It was a thing. 
And then there've been other things that the Lord has come and said, you know, that thing, that attitude, that judgment, that gossip, that misprioritization of your day and your life and your ministry, that thing, I want that thing. (laughs) Because that's the thing that's blocking more of my glory. We want, we want all, everything. We say, oh God, give it all, give it all. And then he comes to us and says, that thing. What thing has occupied the altar of your heart? What Isaac are you holding on to? What Isaac has stolen the affection of your heart? What Isaac has perverted your heart? So I know some parents are be like, no, I, it's not kingdom first, it's family first. And it must be family and I will sacrifice everything for my kids and God calls them to the mission field and they say, no, my kids come first. And it sounds so right and it sounds so holy. And yet who do we think if God our heavenly father gave us his one and only son, to lay down on a cross so that you and I could be restored and reconciled. I'm not saying he's asking you to lay down your kids. All I'm saying is, has even your kids become a greater thing in your life than your relationship with God? Has your ministry become a greater thing, an Isaac in your life? Has your career, your educational status, your dream, your ambition, has it become the thing that has stolen your worship of the one true God? Because Abraham, the apostle Paul, and all of the heroes of the faith discovered something. They possessed nothing, but they had access to everything. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Just think for a moment. Imagine if Jesus had failed the test in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, please take this cup of suffering away from me. And he didn't finish the rest of the prayer. Yet not my will, but your will be done. He said, please take this cup of suffering away from me. I don't like this. Sweating drops of blood, self-pity. God, don't you realize how much this is hurting Don't you see how much good we could do if I just built a kingdom on earth? And he walked up out of the Garden of Gethsemane, how history would be different for you and I. Can you imagine if Abraham hadn't have offered up Isaac on the altar? Oh, God would have found his man or his woman, but he wouldn't have used Abraham. But you and I are known forever by faith as the offspring of Abraham because one man gave up the possession of the one thing that occupied his heart so that he could have access to everything. And this is what God is calling this church and you and I to. He's calling us to lay down our Isaac on the altar, whatever that is. And I don't know what that is for you, only you know. And often nobody else knows what it is, but deep in our heart, the Lord will come by his spirit and pinpoint something and say, that's your Isaac. And I'm calling you to get up early in the morning to saddle your donkey and go to that land of Moriah 
Because Abraham, this isn't just about you and Isaac, but I'm going to raise up a people through you. And one day on a mountain, there is going to be a temple that is going to be filled with so much glory of my presence that it requires you to sacrifice here so that my people can have a place to worship here. Your individual sacrifices have corporate ramifications. And I shudder to think where we as a church would be in the last 12 months if there hadn't have been moments in my past, simple, silly little things like go sell your bike, let go of that position and that role, step away from that church and hand it to your spiritual son and go to the land that I will show you. Because all of those things in my journey were things that occupied my heart. But I knew that there was something greater. And no one can take that away. And that is the beauty and the glory of relationship with Jesus. I read this morning in my devotions where the disciples, when they heard the call to follow him, they left their nets behind and they went and followed him. Whether it's your Isaac or whether it's your net, Leave your nets behind and come follow him. Thank you for listening to Numa Church with Corey Turner. We pray that you have been blessed by today's message. Please follow us on our social media platforms and visit our website, numa.church.